And, uh, you know, we're both taking the Creative Destruction Lab introduction course. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening in are taking the Creative Destruction Lab in intro course as well. And this course is an introduction to entrepreneurial strategy. Um, and it, it got me thinking that politicians are really not that different from entrepreneurs. Hi, my name is Anand. I'm an MBA student at the University of Toronto. Welcome to The Why Coordinate, the weekly podcast where we discuss the why behind human society and behavior, using lessons from pop culture and our own experiences to lead a more intentional, efficient, and happy life. Hello, everyone. Welcome to an exciting new episode of The Why Coordinate podcast. Today, I have with me Connor Fraser. Um, as the guest, he's been a hard man to get on this podcast. It's uh, I've been <laughs> to get you on this pod for a few weeks. Um, so I'll introduce Connor and then I'll have him introduce, talk a bit about himself further. Um, Connor Fraser is a first year MBA student at U of T. He earned a BASC in engineering science and a major in electrical and computer engineering, also at the University of Toronto. He then worked as a member of the technology development team at Microchip Corporation, Northern San Jose, California, where he contributed to the design of computer memory for FPGA chips. Connor volunteered for the U of T human-powered vehicles design team as a machinist and led the design of a rollover detection system for high-speed tricycles. During the summer of 2013, 15, and 17, Connor lived in Quebec thanks to support from the YMCA Student Work Summer Exchange and the Explore program, and is now decently proficient in spoken French. He's currently enrolled in the dual Master of Global Affairs and Master of Business Admin program at U of T. Connor is a senior producer with Beyond the Headlines, a weekly public affairs radio show that airs on CIUT 89.5 FM. Whew. That's quite the introduction, Connor, and I'm really excited to have you here. Um, how are you doing today? Thank you, Anag. Yeah, um, thanks for the introduction. That means a lot. And I'm also very happy to be here. Uh, this is great, great initiative. And as someone who also works on a, you know, a radio show or a podcast, I know that these are you know, challenging to produce. Uh, so it's great to be on the, the opposite end. I'm usually playing, playing your role. Actually, this morning, I had an interview with, uh, with someone from the University of California, San Diego, Dad Kaus. Mm -hmm. Kouser, Thad Kouser for our uh, one of our upcoming episodes. So that was what my morning looked like. We had an interesting discussion about democracy in the United States and civil war. Um, and then the afternoon I had lunch with a friend. Um, I, we, we both have the CDL course today, so I haven't even thought about the assignment yet that's due, but that's a thing and hopefully um, maybe with you attend the uh, Spark Night uh, that's happening tonight, but who knows? <laughs> Amazing. Uh, so let's let's dive into it. Uh, so my first question for you, Connor, is: Do you have a, a funny story, uh, perhaps from your childhood, that your family likes to share? That you could yeah. <laughs> yes. So this is, it's a funny story. It's something that I've told, I've told my family, but it didn't happen when um, I was necessarily with them. Is that, if that um, kind of fits the description, yeah, yeah. Um, the first thing yeah. that came, came to my mind. Uh, so back in 20, I think it was 2013. This was my first summer living away from my family. I was in Quebec at the time uh, in St. Therese, which is about an hour north of Montreal. And uh, some friends and I from Burlington were there on the YMCA um, student work summer exchange program. And uh, going to Montreal was like the thing to do on the weekends. So I was, I was getting ready to go with my friends uh, to Montreal and go to the Metro station, but I was taking the bus and this was like my first time ever taking the bus and being, you know, really silly and naive. I didn't have my debit card with me. All I had was um, change and not just any change, but like dimes. And the bus fare was $4.50. So I had this wallet that was full of dimes and I'm getting on the bus 
didn't know where to put all the dimes. And it turned out that there was this little tiny slot on uh, at the front of the bus where you had to put coins one by one. So you can imagine $4.50 in dimes, putting that through the slot just took forever. And all the, uh, the bus was filled with local Quebecois people who were just looking at me. They're like, oh my God, like this, this guy, this like Anglophone, God, we're gonna have to wait so long for him. And then I dropped the coins. And so they scattered all over the bus floor. And uh, yeah, I was, I was so embarrassed. It was just, you know, the first time you take a bus, it's, a, it's an experience. And uh, my conclusion from that was to just always have a transit pass. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Always have your presto. And yeah, it was just, just funny seeing the looks at everyone's faces, like just rolling their eyes. Jeez. I know, it's, it's crazy. I, um, I have two funny stories about traveling in the bus as well. I've, uh, so in, in, in India, when you take the bus, there's no like concept of the bus not stopping if there are no people to get off or people to get on. Like it has to stop at every bus stop. So the first time I was in, uh, in Italy and I was trying to take the bus somewhere and that bus was like every half an hour. So my hotel reception told me to go to a bus stop, wait there and you'll come and I'm like, okay. I waited there for like half an hour, a bus came, but it never stopped because you're supposed to wave for it to stop. It just zoomed past. Then I waited for another half an hour. The second bus came, it zoomed past again. And I was very furious. I stomped back to my hotel and I told the receptionist that, hey, the buses don't seem to stop. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> um, so that was like the first experience. The second time I took a bus in London where I didn't know that you have to press a button for the bus to stop. So the yes. guy sitting next to me um, kept pressing that button. And I was coming from India where that pressing that button is the equivalent of the emergency alarm that you have in the TTC and you get like fined uh, yes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this guy is just monkeying around. He's pressed this, now he'll get off. And then these people are going to arrest me for pressing it. <laughs> so I was so scared for that entire bus trip. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. Like when I when I was younger, I think I, uh, I remember that the wires they had on the bus used to be a little more all over the place. And I've confused them. Or when I, when I was younger, I confused them together and thought that the emergency ones were like the ones that you're supposed to pull when you want a regular stop. And so now I'm just like really careful when I'm older, even still apprehensive about asking the bus to stop uh, myself. But luckily, when you're in Toronto, most people, the bus stops at most places. So you don't have to uh, necessarily worry about that too much. But I leave the pulling of the, of the wire to other people. <laughs> <laughs> true um okay so let's uh let's dive into the topic for today connor you picked a very interesting way um intense topic would you want to go ahead and introduce the topic in your own words yeah so i think the question i had uh used to frame this discussion was why understanding entrepreneurship can also help you understand politics or help you become a better politician or conceptualize, you know, what's going on in the political world. And, uh, you know, we're both taking the Creative Destruction Lab introduction course. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening in are taking the Creative Destruction Lab in intro course as well. And this course is an introduction to entrepreneurial strategy. Um, and it, it got me thinking that politicians are really not that different from entrepreneurs. Uh, Fundamentally, what, what a politician does is that they are creating value for people, hopefully creating value for people, their constituency, and then capturing some of that value, uh, both for themselves and for their constituency. And then on the other hand, on the flip side, you have entrepreneurship, where um, you know, an entrepreneur's goal is to create value for consumers for, for people who they're selling their products to, and then try and capture that value for themselves and for uh, their investors. And, you know, there, there are slight differences in the sense that I think the value we're talking about in, in our, in our class is hard, hardcore money. It's very quantifiable, <clears throat> quantifiable, but 
when you when you go into the political realm, the the value, you know, we also talk about money in terms of the finances of a government or who how wealth is distributed, but also quality of life, who mm -hmm. gets to make who gets to make decisions and why, who gets to live mm -hmm. in a certain place uh, and why and and so forth. So there's multiple other dimensions in the political sphere, which adds uh, layers of complexity. But fundamentally, I think the concepts are the same that we're creating value, we're capturing value. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I just saw that I saw that connection and it immediately clicked with me and I thought it'd be great to to delve more into it in the show and, uh, you know, get get some people who are taking this course to also uh, see that connection. No, that's very interesting. I so I'll kick things off by asking you a question about this sort of analogy. What, what, what do you like? What is the politician equivalent of capturing value? I get the value creation aspect of being a politician, but what is it? Is it um, the fame, the power, the monetary compensation that comes with it? Like, how does a politician capture value? Yeah, that's actually um, a really good point. And I think there's many ways that value could be captured in terms of longevity of political office. Are you popular enough? Um, are you competitive enough to maintain your seat or your riding? Or in Canada, we have a democracy in other countries. You know, this is a very abstract concept. Maybe, um, maybe you're a, a military dictator and you're, you're capturing value for yourself through a very forceful way that that is what happens in a lot of places um also in terms of you know uh fame for example is one one thing that certainly motivates a lot of people um one other thing i would add might just be um you know corruption might be another way to to capture value if you're getting bribes or kickbacks in canada we have uh, a lot of mechanisms to guard against that but it still happens. People are still people, and uh, they will yeah. they will take advantage of a situation to the extent that they possibly can. And yeah. uh, unfortunately, that's that's the way things are. It's not. I don't like it, but it's the way things are. <laughs> well, coming from a country where um, corruption is way more of a problem than it is in Canada, I agree with you. Uh, and uh, so. So how do we proceed from here? Do you want to like, dig, lean in deeper on this sort of uh, metaphor and talk? Yeah, about? yeah, I can, I can give you some examples that I was, I was thinking about before the class because, uh, you know, within within the CDL intro, the professor, as you know, has classified strategy for distinct types of entrepreneurial strategies. You have intellectual property strategy, architectural strategy. Um, disruption and value and yeah. the and the value chain. So, you know, we could uh, kind of go into an example of each of those and and see where the analogy holds, where the analogy doesn't hold. Yeah. Um, what That's are some right. implications of it? So, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, but maybe before we sort of dive into that, let's maybe introduce uh, these sort of four strategies for people who haven't taken the CDL intro course. Maybe. Like a one-line, two-line description of each of those. Sure, sure. I'm actually not super good with the value chain yet, just because I need to watch that last video. But <laughs> so intellectual property, the idea is you have uh, control over some resource that mm -hmm. somebody else needs. Like they really need this thing that you have control over because you have a patent. So in mm -hmm. order to create that value, they need you. Mm -hmm. And you can use this resource to enforce um, collaboration with them. It's essentially enforced collaboration. Yeah. Um, architectural strategy means that you are competing with those who um, you know are are hoping to create value instead of you, but you're also um, you're also investing to control everything. So it basically means you want to control everything. You want to become a monopoly. Think um, like Microsoft or Facebook or like an oligopoly sort of market. That is what an architectural strategy is. Um, disruption is uh, characterized by aggressive competition. So you're not collaborating with anyone, you're, you're competing with them. Um, but 
instead of investing for for control, you're investing for execution. So the idea here is like get out as fast as you can before your competitors screw the patents. Um, just get out there, get your customers, and compete with everyone else. Think of like an Uber or a Lyft. Um, you know, there's not. I I think those companies have intellectual property, but the idea of a ride-hailing app isn't something that's unique, uh, and that's certainly demonstrated by the number of competitors that are out there. But these companies just got ahead of the curve and were able to uh, execute very fast. So that is what disruption is. And value chain, I'm not as familiar with yet. I, do you know how to explain that? Yeah. So uh, just to sort of take a step back, these four strategies are divide, are sort of classified on two axes. One is uh, compete versus collaborate. That is the first axis. And the other axis is execute versus control. So value chain comes under collaborate and uh, execute. So basically in a value chain, what you do is you uh, you become a part of the value chain. So like, for example, uh, if you think of, um, if let's say think of Uber, for example, uh, if someone wanted to come up with a more sophisticated way of um, connecting drivers, maybe a more sophisticated algorithm, they could have launched their own app alongside Uber. That would be an example of disruptive strategy. But they could have also sold their algorithm to Uber to implement in their application. That is an example of value chain, where whatever value creation that you do, instead of you know setting up shop next to the incumbent competitors, you go collaborate with them and you try to be a part of it. It's different from um, the IP strategy because in the IP strategy, you use patents to uh, prevent other people to replicate that and you get paid like a licensing fee. Whereas in this case, it's about more about execution. There are no patents. It's about how well you do it and you do it in a way where uh, either the incumbent firms that you're trying to deal with or future competitors are not able to do as good of a job. Yeah, that's what uh, that's what confused me most about this strategy because you know when when you think about our strategy course that we took last semester, when you think mm -hmm. about strategy in general, it's it's all about how unique are you, mm -hmm. um, how much do other people actually need you like the world is a really hard place you always need yeah. to justify why other people need you and i think each of these four strategies yeah. depicts a different scenario of yeah. what makes you unique and it wasn't entirely clear for me how you be unique in a value chain strategy but like you said there it's all about um doing something better than someone else can do it mm -hmm. or doing something that is is fairly specific like a detailed algorithm but doing it something better than than an existing company can do it, but I don't know. I'm I still feel like I need uh, need to think a little more it's, about that so strategy. It's, it's it's more so uh, if you're if you you're comfortable with the control versus execution uh, difference, then it's like the uh, intellectual property, but rather than focusing on getting some sort of long term control, you're just focused on getting the execution much better and instead of you know competing head to head with the industry or with the players that you would be impacting you become like a supplier to them uh, the best example of the value chain strategy that i can think of is foxconn foxconn is a are, are you aware of foxconn foxconn i think i'm confusing it with fox 40 whistles but uh, whenever I hear Fox, I think of Fox 40 whistles <laughs> no, for some Fox, reason. Uh, Foxconn is this company, I believe, based out of China. I might be wrong. But basically what they do is they make, they manufacture the first prototype of every uh -huh. like major electronics. So, and they are used by everyone from Samsung to Apple. So every time the first, like, uh, first prototype almost finished version of the new iPhone is created by Foxconn and they sort of help with the prototyping and then mass production can happen wherever it happens. So that's like, and that's such a specific thing in the value chain and they've become so good at it in terms of quality and price that 
nobody else can sort of come in and take over that. It's it's cheaper and better for Apple to use Foxconn for their prototyping than to do it themselves. So that's like an example of the value chain side. Okay. Okay, that actually, that makes a little more sense now. So there's a sense that, uh, you know, Apple could probably still do this stuff as yeah. well, but it's just like, it's not worth their investment because they wouldn't be able to do it nearly as well as the stuff that they do in-house. So they're each focusing on what they're, yeah. what they're best at. Yeah, yeah. And okay. I mean, theoretically, if Foxconn wanted a disruptive strategy, they could have started making these, like going from making these prototypes to actually launching these phones um, themselves alongside Apple. That would have been disruptive. Mm-hmm. Right, like if they had decided to... Uh try and make a, a Foxconn phone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I'm not sure the brand name commands the same amount of premium. Or a premium. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so those are things which Foxconn doesn't have, like brand and all of that. So maybe that's why they choose to collaborate rather than compete. Okay, so yeah. I think we have sort of defined the four strategies. Now, I'm very interested to hear about like how you would you know translate them to the political landscape scenario? Yeah, so so something that that has happened recently in Canadian politics is that um, the Liberal government and the New Democratic Party have formed uh, an alliance, like a coalition government, and this mm-hmm. is important because the Liberals um, they had a minority government before they they would have likely had to face an election in the next year or two. Mm-hmm. But with this uh, announcement recently between the NDP and the Liberals, they're able to extend their mandate until 2025, which is considerable. Uh, and I would characterize this, you know, analogize this uh, as an intellectual property type strategy uh, on the part of the NDP. And the analogy would be that the number of seats that they had in the legislature, which Mm. is something like 20, maybe it's even less than 20, but Mm. a very small number of seats uh, is sort of like their intellectual property uh, Mm. that they've invested in. Uh, Mm. You know, they're not a very popular uh, political party across the country, but there are certain regions, certain areas of the country where they are very popular Mm. and they have come up with a small number of seats. And it turns out at this moment, that number of seats was critical to uh, the Liberal Party. And by sort of joining forces, by collaborating, mm-hmm. uh, they're able to to extend, uh, extend the government's mandate until 2025. And in return for that, uh, they also uh, extracted some policy concessions from the Liberals. Mm-hmm. Does that does that kind of make sense? Um, it, it, it does, but you could also make the case that it might fall in the value chain because they... Uh, no, but you're saying that there are some certain regions where they have a very popular like body and I guess not just this election period, but most for the foreseeable future, they'll keep sort of winning in those constituencies and it's around 20 seats they'll always have, then that sort of makes it like a IP rather than value chain. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, ex- exactly. So it's sort of, an I, the IP strategy in this case could be conceived as a, a political group that isn't, you know, isn't going to win the entire government, just like this, this company might be small and might only have a couple engineers and scientists and might not be able to capture the entire industry, but they have some ideas. Mm. They have, um, they have enough power, enough, enough ideas to convince a certain number of people to be on board with them. And that amount is, is critical to the people who are actually in power to maintain and extend their mandate, just like the intellectual property that a small company might create mm-hmm. could be critical to a large enterprise or a critical piece of their to, to add value to them. Mm-hmm. So that 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 is something that you know came came across uh, the news recently and really clicked through my head as uh, as what an IP strategy might might look like in the political political realm. It's not a perfect analogy, but uh, <laughs> there it is. Um, 
No, I think it, it fits quite well. Um, what's next? So the next one is is architectural, and this one might be a little um, little more controversial, but I like to talk about it anyways. What's going on right now in the United States with uh, with the, the political situation down there? You have the Democrats and the Republicans disagreed about the outcome of the 2020 election. Mm -hmm. And and what you see is that both sides are aggressively competing with one another. So they're on that compete axis. They're not looking to collaborate on anything. Yeah. Uh, and it's been that way for a while. Um, and then you also see that the Republicans are making what could be classified as investments for control in the wake of the 2020 election. And by control, I mean, they're appointing judges, uh, or even before the 2020 election, something that Donald Trump was very good at um, was appointing as many judges as he possibly could at all levels of government at the state level or the federal level. Um, and after the election, something that the, uh, the Republicans have been doing is replacing um, election officials state by state with people who are supporters of the president. Mm. They have been uh, trying to repeal election laws uh, across the country at the state level. And many of these, these laws, many of these people were critical to upholding the result of the 2020 election. Uh, so here, I think you see, what you see is an architectural strategy in the sense where there's one group um, the Republicans that mm -hmm. are competing, and they're also broadly investing to control everything. Mm -hmm. So this is this is an architectural strategy. It's very dangerous. Uh, it's a very dangerous strategy, and we can get into that at the end. Okay. Uh, as as sort of some of the the corollaries, corollary insights from this sort of analogy between the entrepreneurial realm and the, uh, the political realm. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's one way to think about an architectural, an architectural strategy in this politics. I really like, uh, they're literally using um, in the US, basically the election officials, the, the judiciary officials, and converting that into their platform, which is ideally supposed to be a neutral independent uh force mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's... yeah and uh you know it's it's unfortunate um and i think one of the great insights of this model is it allows us to ask why anyone would do such a thing because i think people are rational um in general and despite what anyone says um <laughs> Yeah, people people behave according to the incentives that they are given, and so if people are trying to pursue an architectural type strategy in the United States and wrestle wrestle the power of their democracy away uh, into a small into the hands of a small group of people, why are they doing that? Do they feel like the system isn't working for them? Do they feel threatened that if things keep going, their constituency won't be adequately represented? Those are the kinds of questions. Um, you need to start asking when you see someone pursuing an architectural uh, type strategy. And, uh, you know, that, that <laughs> I can't think of an analogy for those kinds of questions in the uh, political or in the, in the entrepreneurial realm, when someone's pursuing an architectural strategy, it's like, just because they, they want the whole pie <laughs> yeah. because they can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then quickly, uh, the final analogy I think we we could talk about is the disruption strategy. And I think there's a great example here with the Me Too movement. Uh, so here you had um, the Me Too movement aggressively competing with people who oppose their opinions um, in, in, in the public discourse and also investing for execution. So I, I don't know if there's any any analogy to people from the Me Too movement of trying to get judges appointed or trying to change election laws, but instead, what you saw was 
use of social media to expose all these people who had done these horrible things, rapidly bringing attention, getting, uh, you know, getting, uh, getting these people's names in the media, getting more people uh, involved with the movement. And same thing with, um, with other protest movements that have emerged in the past uh, year or two. So there's this notion that whenever there's a, there's a movement uh, where there's a group of people that disagree with the consensus and they are trying to compete and change that, but they might not have the, uh, the means to go and invest in control. Instead, uh, social media has allowed rapid, uh, rapid execution strategy. Uh, and so that's why I would characterize the Me Too movement as, as sort of an analogy to a disruptive entrepreneurial strategy. And certainly you've heard a lot, um, a lot of commentators in the media describe the Me Too movement as disruptive. And I think this analogy just shows why uh, it's accurately characterized as disruptive. Mm. No, I agree. That makes sense. Another example I can think of is the in the Indian political realm, uh, there was um, this gentleman called Anazare who started this movement against corruption. He went on like a fast uh, hunger hunger strike protest against it to repeal some laws and um, all of that. He did that twice, and he wasn't able to really achieve any tangible results. They'd sort of do something enough to sort of get him off the strike, and then nothing tangible would happen. But then there was this one gentleman who was like his sort of devout follower. And he then was like, okay, doing it this way doesn't make sense. So I'll have to take matters into my own hands. And then he started his own political party uh, made up of like very, very highly educated Indians. Most of them who've also gone abroad for like their masters and PhDs and all of these people sort of coming together to fight corruption and, you know, really revolutionize or disrupt the Indian political landscape. So they came in and they couldn't. Uh, so now they've sort of like, at least in Delhi, that's where they started. Uh, they're currently the ruling party in Delhi and they're making a lot of strides. So that I feel is another example of like directly coming in, changing and competing with the incumbent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's a great, it's also, you know, shows how if you if we take this example you give a step further why governments in, in some countries try and control the online discourse because it prevents people from coming in and using a disruptive political strategy to wrestle um like the political value away from the incumbents so yeah. social media has enabled social media and um, print media before it and all different types of media have enabled uh, disruption strategies, which are very low cost ways to, to displace incumbents. And so this is precisely why, I mean, I, I don't think, I, I don't know of widespread, uh, you know, control over the internet in India, but I know in China, for example, like their internet is completely censored in Russia right now, it's probably censored in a lot of other countries. Yeah. It's very censored and it's precisely because uh, the people who are in charge don't want to deal with a disruptive strategy yeah, exactly, exactly. And now come, come. what about value chain? Do you have? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. The value chain for me is the toughest to conceptualize because it's the toughest for me to get my head around. Like, why would anyone need you if you're pursuing this strategy? Like, it seems the other three um, seem like they have very easy reasons to explain why this person is unique and can extract value from a situation. But in the value chain, like you said, you have to be really, really good at doing something, mm. but it's not that it's not as if you own that asset. Yeah. So it's like, you're like the NDP right now, you have like the critical number of seats that the liberals really need. So they can exactly create this value without you. So they need you. But in absence of that, why would anyone there are two examples I can think of. I'm not sure whether they fall under value chain or IP. And I mean, if they fall under value chain, um, if they fall under IP, then maybe we can shift the NDP example to value chain. So the first example is of lobbies who influence uh, or even pay mm. money to get what they want. Um, in this scenario, 
it's about like getting like getting the politicians to do what you want them to do without like actively competing in um or, or the other way around so that's one example and then the second one i can think of is using someone else's influence to further your political goals so for someone that has um an established credibility uh maybe in in the political space or not and then for example when um biden used barack obama to sort of get him to endorse uh endorse his presidential campaign that could be an example of um borrowed or like that being invested in executing for the result that he wanted i don't know what you mm. thought on in those three examples yeah i like the lobbying example that's that's very intuitive actually because it's almost like you have if you're a lobbying firm or uh, you have this network and yeah. if you're good at what you do you have a, a really good network of people yeah. that is very hard to replicate and you can almost like monopolize influence over a certain issue so if people want to see action on you know a certain issue like US Israeli uh affairs or US Taiwan affairs they really need to uh go through the lobby or hire a lobbying firm so yeah i guess a, a lobbying firm in a sense can be an example of a value chain strategy where there's no clear reason why someone else couldn't replicate what you're doing but it would just be very difficult to do so because over time you've built up this network mm. um of people yeah that that feel very strongly uh about the same issue that you do and maybe they're just they're just uh there isn't an, enough scope for you to try and recreate that without skimming some of those people off which would be hard to do if, if they're happy with their situation definitely um yeah that's that that i guess <laughs> yeah i want to come back to the architecture strategy that you mentioned and the implications of that being very dangerous uh could we could you talk a bit about that yeah and i think uh when you, when you think about why an architectural strategy is dangerous um think of it uh in the same way as why governments think monopolies are dangerous or why um why everyone should think that a monopoly uh is somewhat dangerous for consumers because um well if if you have a monopoly think about air canada is uh full of monopolies and we pay ridiculous prices um we have companies that don't really innovate and so there's there's a sense that if you if you let a monopoly form you're you aren't going to be creating the optimal amount of value for everyone there's some deadweight loss in other words in yeah. the market and you remember in economics we talked about deadweight loss well a monopoly creates a lot of deadweight loss but they create a lot of value for the owners of the, the monopoly yeah. and uh and so i think there's this great parallel uh when you talk about value in a more abstract sense that uh political monopolies are very dangerous and that's that's precisely what an architectural strategy seeks to form mm -hmm. and uh i i would just say that's why some people you know there's there's this great debate going on right now about what is the better model is the authoritarian model of china better or is the democracy of russia better we look at or the democracy not of russia of the united states better haha and they kind of look at the united states and say oh like this is a mess you know get your stuff together you seem to have a regime change every 4 years and repeal all the same laws we look at them and say oh well there's no political freedom um people can't uh can't speak for themselves and i i really think that um the united states does have the upper hand here when you think about this kind of analogy um because capitalism uh is a political model that's all about creating value and creating the most amount of value possible and that involves continually disrupting what you already have continually adjusting and it's not really clear how a monopoly of power does that so when you get into a situation where you have one group of people that are entrenched um 
you know, they're inevitably, inevitably going to try and maintain that status if they're not forced to compete and, you know, rejuvenate their, their mandate and tell, explain to people why they deserve to be where they are. They're going to get complacent. They're going to entrench and they are going to represent at most and best a very narrow constituency to the exclusion of everyone else. And, you know, there's great examples of this. I think, um, like Syria right now, the, it's uh, not too familiar with the country, but I, to my knowledge, the president Bashar al-Assad is, uh, comes from a minority community within that country, the Alawite minority. And uh, so he's representing them. Is he representing everyone else? I don't, I don't think so. So disruption is important in, in a society to make sure that the, the value that's created is maximized for the most amount of people. And uh, to the extent that that is true, an architectural strategy is dangerous. <laughs> I, I agree with you on that. And would you go as far as to say that the regime change that happens every four years um, and the laws that get repelled are um, an example of the creative destruction process because or is it more of like a pendulum going back and forth yeah and this is kind of where where people might might criticize the united states because sure to start off it was more of like a a creative destruction potentially where you actually had different groups that were were you know competing with one another but not they weren't uh, you know sort of borderline violently opposed to one another, whereas now and since over the last decade, it's increasingly become, well, I'm just going to repeal this law to spite you mm. because I completely disagree with what you say. Mm. But I still do believe that it is more of, uh, it is more of a creative destruction process that goes on within the United States. And uh, something that I, that I talked about this morning with with Professor Kauser from UC San Diego is that uh, like civil, a characteristic of a society that is more likely to fall into civil war, civil conflict is that uh, it becomes organized along racial or ethnic lines. And in the United States, you can kind of see that happening with the majority of people or the majority of white voters in the last election voted for Donald Trump, whereas um, a minority of uh, white voters voted for Joseph Biden. But at the same time, that effect is less strong still in the United States than people who voted along ideological lines. So these are people who would just have different philosophies about the size of government and the role that government should play in society. Uh, and so although there is this kind of pendulum effect going on where yes, okay, this is the elephant in the room, but these parties are somewhat organized along racial and ethnic lines. It's unfortunate, but this is part of, part of life and part of society. But at the same time, the force of people that are voting along ideological lines and uh, you know, voting based on their beliefs on things like abortion or the size of government or uh, you know, the amount of military spending that is appropriate or um, the amount of social assistance programs that are appropriate or the relationships we should have with other countries that are appropriate, these are still like the prevailing competing ideas in the United States and within the majority of Western democracies. So yeah, in a sense, it's a creative destruction process like you mentioned, but, but critically it is changing. And if it changes too much, that's when, that's when it might slip into a civil war or conflict in the United States. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how to follow up that statement. That was a very powerful statement you made, and I agree with you on, on that. Um, I personally do think it's a creative destruction process as well. It's not exactly, and you see this not just in like governments, but you see this in organizations as well. Um, so I interned at Dell for a bit, and there you'd have a new chief information officer, a new CIO come in. Um, every few, like two to four years or so. And he'd come and completely change the, the whole process, the organization is structured, the way they do business, the way they develop new products. And many times it would be sort of going back and forth different, different, between different ideas. 
and that was like the complaint about you know which is sort of going back and forth and there's no real progress happening but even then my belief was that uh with things changing so quickly there's never really like one right way of doing thing that is sustained for a long time um there are different dynamics that change while you have a very myopic view of what you're observing but then you need to put that not just in vacuum but with in regards to how the rest of the world or rest of the universe is changing and maybe uh four years ago it made sense to make this change but now uh, with all those other changes maybe it makes sense to go back to what was originally done so that's like my two cents on this mm -hmm. yeah and uh yeah, I agree. Like, uh, the world is such a complicated place and any notion that humans understand how it works, I think is absolutely ridiculous. So we're constantly under constantly developing new ways of understanding the processes around us. And, and so setting up uh, some sort of disruption uh, mechanism is important. And I think a great example of this could be McKinsey. I don't know too much about the company, but what I have heard is that uh, you know, when you're in McKinsey, you're expected to change positions every two years and you're expected to move up every two years or get out. So you either get promoted or you leave. And mm -hmm. so this is like a constant filter of people to make sure that, you know, people aren't, this organization doesn't find itself in a situation where there's a monopoly of control mm -hmm. by a small group of people, which is what happens in a lot of organizations where, you know, uh, there's like people who have been in this position for years and years and years, and then they try to guard their position and they feel threatened. So within, within the organizational dynamics of McKinsey, it sounds like they're harnessing this, this disruptive power to enable lots of, of competing ideas to flourish and create a lot of value for their clients. Just speculation, but uh, I, I don't know what our people in our class that are going to work for McKinsey would say about that, but I'd be interested to, to hear after they, after they get back from the summer. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. I think the, the, that, do you have like, let's, let's begin to wrap up uh, Connor before we wrap up. Is there anything else you'd like to add or say about the topic? Uh, no, not not in particular, just that this is, I think, an interest of mine. And I think it's intimately connected to some of the courses we take at Rotman, like negotiation, for example, like what is politics, if not negotiation between different groups of people with competing ideologies. And so you see, we connected negotiation to entrepreneurship, to politics here, and there's all like at a, when, once you abstract a couple levels, these subjects all start looking more similar uh, yeah. to one another in a very elegant way. And uh, I, I think that's a really, a really cool thing that, uh, that I've learned from, from this year at Rotman. And I hope, I hope other people can also see that beauty as well. I'm, I'm sure they will. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. I, I enjoy extending uh, things that we learn in school to other faucets of our life and see how they like extend and this is a very beautiful example of that okay so with that we wrap up with the main topic of discussion now i'd like to ask you connor is there something insightful or interesting that you've read heard about thought about in the past few weeks uh, <laughs> um, well, sort of, uh, hopefully you were, you were hoping that it wouldn't be related to the topic we just discussed about. And my, I don't know, man, my mind is all over the place right now. I know there's definitely something insightful that I've, you can that I've heard. Talk about. So in the 42 episodes that I've recorded for this podcast and every time I've asked someone to say something insightful unrelated to the topic at hand, 90% of them have said something related to the topic at hand. So you can go ahead. I guess that's how our brains work. We spend like 45 minutes yeah. thinking about a topic and that's all goes on. That's all there is in the head at that time. So go ahead. Yeah, it's like, it's like anchoring in a sense. Is that how you would uh... put it? Yeah, yeah. 
put it that it's um that it's anchoring mm, i might take a i might take a second here you can edit this out right you yeah, probably yeah. don't want to edit anything do you yeah. use uh, audacity yeah i do yeah oh that's great i love audacity yeah it's so cool um let me just think okay go ahead yeah so this i mean completely unrelated but mm -hmm. uh this just has to do with housing prices in toronto and why uh why things are so bad and i think it well first has to do with uh with just the, the physical nature of our country of canada but uh we can leave that maybe for a, a, a discussion in another another time but in 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 toronto the housing prices are ridiculously high and i think it's because a lot of the land uh, is locked up in single detached housing there are laws that were signed decades ago which essentially say outside of the downtown core you if you knock over a single detached house it must be replaced with a single detached house oh. so we have essentially legislated low density housing in the gta and it's going to be incredibly you think of how long it takes infrastructure to change infrastructure is a very slow moving hmm. um thing it takes decades and decades to change the composition of infrastructure and uh, uh, you know, couple that with uh, the majority of people in Toronto who are homeowners right now who are very happy with how the price of their homes has, you know, tripled or quadrupled. And mm. you have a situation where these people have a lot of political power and aren't going to want to see any changes uh, that might, you know, significantly impact yeah. impact their housing prices. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a very clear way uh, why housing prices in Toronto are just so extremely high. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think anyone is seriously talking about that in the in the media. It seems to be all uh, discussions about bidding wars and you know, why isn't the government doing anything about this without actually understanding that this is, you know, almost written written in a law that mm. <laughs> this is how for some reason Decades ago, people decided this is how they wanted their city to look, a very, very flat city for the most part. And uh, so that's just something to chew on. <laughs> yeah, but um, I mean, I, I can see the positives of an issue like that, but obviously it makes it very extremely expensive to live here. Uh, doesn't, is there significant rent control in Toronto to the likes of New York or it's not? No. No, I don't think so. There, there is community housing, like the city of Toronto mm. does run community housing for I, I don't know how many units there are, but I don't, I don't believe Ontario has a uh, rent control and rent control is really bad. By the way, uh, all econ most economists agree that rent control is very bad, maybe under a specific set of circumstances, it is. Um, it is good, but in most most cases, it's very. It will take a bad situation and make it a lot worse. <laughs> but then, what is the solution? Because if you start breaking down all single unit housing and make skyscrapers there, which currently now has two hundred people living in that sort of same area where you had maybe four people, that's going to start putting pressure on all the other infrastructure of the city, the public transport. Yeah. Yeah, and this is sort of um, like, I, I see what you're saying, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that, you know, we knock over a couple single detached houses in, in a neighborhood in, uh, you know, uh, Thornhill or wherever and replace it with a huge skyscraper. It could just be something like, okay, if you're knocking over a single detached house, you can replace it with something up to three stories or four stories. And when you go to a city like Montreal, Montreal is somewhere where all around the downtown core, you have multi-unit houses. They're not huge, they're not skyscrapers, but you can have, uh, you know, four-story buildings, which are very beautiful, very elegant, not invasive to neighboring properties mm -hmm. and, and make uh, communities a lot denser. And the other thing, uh, which kind of gets back to what I said at the beginning, is that we need to think beyond Toronto. Like, this is just the physical structure of our country. We're, we're not a landlocked country, but we're almost effectively landlocked. 
in the sense that, uh, you know, the United States, when you think about, they have, you know, very clean access to the Atlantic and Pacific coasts, yeah. uh, multiple cities on each coast, multiple yeah. cities in the interior uh, in Canada. On the West Coast, we really just have Vancouver yeah. and then all up, all up the rest of the West Coast. Um, it's, it's just so, such a rugged terrain that it's inaccessible. And of course, Vancouver is bordered by mountains on either side. And then in in on the west coast or on the east coast rather, um, I'm not sure why why the maritimes haven't grown as much. I, I haven't thought about that as much, but uh, we really just have have Toronto. So if we're serious about this problem, we need to make other areas in Canada attractive to live. Yeah, uh, that, that somehow. Is what I was getting to. Uh, yeah, over time. I mean, this doesn't just happen immediately, but uh, it's a conversation we we need to have and maybe it's not even possible like maybe people live in Toronto for a reason because it's the most attractive one of the most attractive places to live in Canada and other locations just don't fit that bill for what people expect and that's a very big problem uh, for the government. Yeah but I mean I'm sure there are options like London Ontario or other cities in Ontario are fairly similar to Toronto in uh, their geography. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like I was thinking London, uh, Windsor is great because Windsor is right beside Detroit. So you have an opportunity to collaborate with American businesses, Niagara region, mm-hmm. even uh, Sault Ste. Marie, Thunder Bay. Yeah. These are more in Northern Ontario. Um, as the ice melts, uh, <laughs> I think you'll see Churchill. Churchill is in Northern Manitoba and I was just on the Wikipedia page uh, the other day, and they have a deep water port facility uh, in Churchill, Manitoba. But of course, Hudson's Bay is frozen over for most of the year, so you can't get ships. But uh, should the ice, you know, as as global warming unfortunately continues to happen, should mm-hmm. the ice on Hudson's Bay become, um, you know, less less present in the summer? I think they only get two months of no ice in the summer, but. Hmm. Uh, should that window become longer, a place like Churchill, Manitoba might be a great gateway to the interior of the country to ship products out, uh, hmm. out to the world. So this is, this is something to look for, look for uh, as a broader trend in the next two or three decades. Hmm. What about like a railway line, a high-speed railway line that transports goods from like the ports to the interior in like Alberta or something like that. Do you think that's a feasible option as well? Um, High-speed rail, yeah, maybe. Um, not sure how much energy that would take or how safe, you mean like a Hyperloop kind of thing or just high-speed rail in general? High-speed in general, like infrastructure to support goods transfer, like not just like passengers, but like actual goods. Uh, to offset the fact that like Alberta has no it's like, in the middle of a continent yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah I th- I think so and that that is part of the issue is that uh, you know these cities on the interior of the Canadian continent uh, are find it very difficult to get their goods mm-hmm. to market when you think about the United States and like St. Louis for example is on the Mississippi River I think uh, and so that's a direct conduit to the Gulf of Mexico. So these places have a very cost-effective way to ship their goods out um, to market, whereas somewhere like Alberta doesn't really have access to a great big river like that, and so it's very constrained. So yeah, yeah, high-speed rail, uh, as long as it would be profitable, Hmm. um, could be an interesting idea, but but also, uh, you know, the economy is increasingly built around knowledge and so that might bode well for Alberta going forward if they're they're trying to transition away from from being from being primarily commodity based to something a little more intangible. Yeah. Uh, maybe there's a case to be made that the uh, Ontario um, should transition more into into commodities because we're closer to export markets, whereas Alberta uh, just to diversify themselves and protect against future shocks should should be more, uh, we should be investing more in a, in them, uh, the intangible space. For sure, for sure. Okay, uh, I love how our like underrated topic became like a discussion of an episode on its own. But, 
let's uh, let's uh, wrap up. Uh, Connor, any final thoughts on this topic? No, this was great discussion. I learned um, a lot of new things myself, and I'm glad. Uh, I think I, I was able to understand the value chain strategy better, so maybe I can skip that reading. <laughs> this is, uh, yeah. So great. Thanks. Thanks so much. Uh, this was really fun. Uh, likewise, Connor. One final question for you: um, Who would you like to see featured next on the podcast? I would. I would love uh, to listen to a discussion with Keda. Uh, Keta is a really interesting uh, individual, and I think she would have some really, really in insightful and, and cool stories to share. We'll definitely, we'll try to get her on the podcast soon. And uh, yeah, that's the end. Uh, thank you so much for joining in today, Connor. I know you're a busy man, and it's been a busy few weeks, but I appreciate you taking time, taking out time, and joining me today. So thanks so. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's an honor. All right, I'm going to stop recording now.